You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I am Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post. But do not adjust your sets. We have had a bit of a rebrand and we look forward to bringing you broader coverage of China's relationship with the rest of the world, looking at trade, economics, politics and everything in between. There's not going to be too many changes. We're going to maintain some of the same focus with some of the same guests, but we look forward to bringing you even more information every week. It's almost one year since the first lockdowns were implemented in Wuhan, China, after the discovery of what was then called a novel coronavirus. That has gone on to dominate almost every aspect of our lives over the past 12 months. In economic terms, it has been crippling. Most countries report a recession for 2020 at the very least, while it's also caused endless geopolitical friction between China and its rivals, including the United States and Europe. This week, China announced its lowest economic growth figure since the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, growing by 2.3% in 2020 from a year earlier. But, and an important but, this is expected to be the only major economy to have expanded in a horrible calendar year. On this week's show, we're going to take a deep dive into those numbers, beyond the headlines, to discuss the good and the bad in China's economy one year into the pandemic. I'll be joined as ever by our political economy editors, John Carter and Zhou Xin, to discuss what worked and what didn't work quite so well for Beijing. While we've seen a small resurgence of cases in the north of China recently, China has mostly succeeded in containing the virus and reopening its economy. That's no mean feat. But with rising debt levels and increasing inequality, experts are warning that this is not economic growth that comes without a price tag. In the second part of the show, I'll be joined on the line by Jacob Fromer, who's our Washington correspondent and who has been right at the heart of the action in the American capital this week, following all things inauguration, as well as the hearings of key appointees to US President Joe Biden's cabinet. Now, that was a weird one to say for the first time on the mic. What does this mean for the US-China relationship? Stay tuned to find out. Joined as ever by our political economy editors, Joe Shin and John Carter, to discuss the week's news out of China. And what a week it's been. It's December. No, it's not. It's January 21st, and it's almost exactly one year since the first lockdowns came into place in Wuhan, China, to contain what was then being described as a novel coronavirus. This week, we saw almost a complete turnaround in the Chinese economy following a 6.8% contraction, 6.8% contraction in the first quarter of 2020. It got back on its feet. We saw full year figures which showed that in the full year of 2020, the Chinese economy expanded by 2.3% compared to 2019. This is historically low by Chinese standards, the lowest since 1976. But there are plenty of caveats and important pieces of context around that. China is expected to be the only major economy to to report economic growth in 2020, as the rest of the world grapples with recession, depression and coronavirus outbreaks left, right and centre. 
Um, John, we start with you. Uh, it was a little bit higher than was expected. I think the main analyst consensus was 2.1%. What were your main takeaways from this week's data dump? So first of all, uh, the 2.3% um, growth is important uh, because it is growth. And every other major economy in the world is going to report negative growth. In other words, their economies are going to contract. So that's the first thing. It, it talks of, it underscores China's success in controlling the coronavirus pandemic and getting its economy back on its feet. And another, uh, to underscore that, China had growth rate of 6.5% in the fourth quarter, which was higher than in the fourth quarter of 2019 before the start of the outbreak. So China's economy is pretty much back where it was, at least in terms of the overall growth rate uh, from where it was before the pandemic. Uh, however, the recovery is uneven. Strong industrial production, strong exports, strong infrastructure and property uh, uh, construction, but relatively weak uh, consumer spending. Retail sales uh, fell last year for the whole year while all the other categories rose. Uh, and it uh, decel growth decelerated in December. Mm -hmm. um, this is down to a number of factors, worries about job, worries about income, um, uh, income inequality in China. And it raises the question, which is still being debated, about the whether Beijing needs to do more to support its uh, consumers in this year. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, just to uh, follow up on that, John, there are a lot of countries around the world who would um, take growth no matter what, like, you know, you mentioned infrastructure, exports, investment. I mean, these are buzzwords that uh, economies are crying out for. So why does it matter? Does it matter indeed that this imbalance exists in China? Um, is, is it a case of all growth being good growth or should this be something to work on? Well, it, it, it's good that there's growth in this current situation. There's no doubt about that. It creates jobs and, and keeps people relatively um, happy. But um, what you have is you uh, the Chinese government, like all other major governments in the world, implemented a series of economic support measures. And they want to uh, taper off those measures this year because they're not sustainable. Um, so in the future, you're going to want a little less um, industrial production, less property investment, less infrastructure spending, not a lot less, but some less. And you hope that the consumer comes in and fills in that space that's being left. And to do that, you need to do, as I say, things like insure more jobs and reduce the income inequality, other perhaps even giving money directly to consumers so that there's more consumer spending because it is already the largest portion of the economy, but you need it to increase and hold up its part of the bargain. So, Shin, as we mentioned, 2.3%, um, the envy of many nations at the moment, but low by Chinese standards. What historical context can we look to for this? I mean, where does this sort of lie in, in, the, in the grander scheme of things? Oh, thank you, Fingbar. I think beyond the figures, I want to uh, raise three perspectives to look at China's GDP figure. First of all, we have to look at behind the figures, you know, what it takes to achieve this 2.3. And the one big concern is that China is uh, investing too much 
to achieve this kind of growth. So the pro productivity is a big issue, which means China needs to spend more money, accumulate more data to generate a generate a single unit of GDP, and that is uh, kind of a sustainability issue. And second perspective is about, as John mentioned, it's about uh, uh, e equality. I mean, at one hand, you know, this is a very upbeat story. China will be the only major economy to report positive growth. It is only a matter of time to China to replace the United States as the world's largest economy. But look at the Chinese people. I mean, many, many people are suffering, really, in 2020. You look at young 22-year-old, uh, you know, fresh graduate, worked to her desk, basically, working for one of China's most successful e-commerce companies. You look at these delivery men working outdoor, you know, in a, in a, in a freezing environment of uh, 20 minus, and still can't you know, get their salary paid, so they, he has to set himself on fire to, to ask for attention. And you can see, you know, taxi drivers working for, you know, taxi hailing companies working 14 to 15 hours a day and like no break seven days a week. And just to, you know, cover their family needs and education and uh, healthcare costs. So there are lots of, uh, lots of uh, issues about this. On the one hand, you see people lining up in luxury stores and, you know, for Maltai, which cost two, over 2,000 a bottle easily in the market. And on the other hand, there's 600 million people who earn the monthly income is less than that. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge inequality there. This is a second perspective. And, and, and this uh, Chinese leadership clearly realized that it is a huge problem. Mm. You know, they have to solve it. It's not an economic issue, but a political issue. But on how they can do this, uh, there are still lots of, uh, you know, things and a discussion. I don't think they have a clear answer yet. Mm. And the third perspective is a little bit longer. It's a historical one. Do you want to have a guess of uh, how much, you know, China's GDP is uh, 40 years ago? You mean like in, in raw? In, in, 19, yeah, in 1980 or 1981. Okay, I'm going to guess. So it passed the 100 trillion yuan mark last year. So I'm going to guess uh, 5 trillion? No, much less than that. Right. By U.S. dollar terms, in 20, 1981, I think it's slightly below 200 billion U.S. dollars. Mm. And last year, as you said, it's 100 trillion yuan, so it's uh, 15 trillion U.S. dollars, mm. which by uh, times is 75 times. So anyone, this is the longest like economic boom cycle uh, in human being history. So anyone living in China, as long as he is not, you know, too bad, you know, he can he can have a, a significant improvement during this period of time. If he buys anything, he buys a property, the, the value will increase. You know, if he investing most of his stocks, maybe he has a, a kind of uh, investment returns. And if he takes a normal job, he can expect a salary increase year after year in the last 40 years. But, but now we have reached this certain stage that it will be very, very difficult to achieve the similar thing. So this is called involution. You know, the eternal competition will be much harder. Mm -hmm. The same people in the middle management will be sitting on their desks for the, for the next 10 to 15 years, which means the young people, the jobs available for the young people are getting fuel and fuel. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the you know, biggest issue for the Chinese leadership as well. You know, Xi Jinping said, we're going to double our GDP in, by 2035. Well, that's a quite good target. That's quite ambitious. But still compared to like you know, 75 mm. times of increase. That's nothing, which means there are very limited resources, limited, more uh, limited chances for the, for the people. Of course, in absolute terms, it's still very good. You know, from 1 to 70 is something, from 70 to 100, 
40 is still it's double but the absolute amount is is there mm -hmm. but still the the competition will be much much harder and this will affect everyone yeah not only not only like individuals but also companies you can you can look uh, you know like Tencent Tencent's price today in Hong Kong is 700 Hong Kong dollars oh my goodness imagine just 10 years ago it's like 10 huh? but now it's WeChat has 1.2 billion users so it's absolutely clear that you cannot have another 1.2 billion users in the next 10 years so this is a, this is a problem and as you can see you know the, the um for the e-commerce for the gaming all these kind of competition are heating up that's yeah. because like the, the the market is maturing if you if you penetrate first of all you know it's enough to support a, a few companies in shanghai and beijing and gradually going to the second tier or third tier cities now the mobile phone is almost in every chinese consumer's hand so it's making it much more difficult yeah. you know to make money for these uh, for these companies so this is a very interesting thing to see over the next uh, you know decades to come yeah i mean is this a a sort of quantity over quality issue um i mean this is something they hear out of official chinese government statements all the time the quality of growth mm -hmm. the quality of trade and uh, this is an issue i guess that other governments have faced as well when you get to saturation point there's only so many people you can um, you know, roll out a product for the first time too. So I suppose maybe of key importance is how to improve the granularity and the quality of the growth rather than just these big massive numbers of building something for the first time that we're so used to coming out of China. Yeah, that, that's the issue, I think. But, but the whole Chinese development model or the whole system yeah. is is tailored to this kind of, you know, we just to build the things and the people will come, you know, this kind of model instead of, you know, it's it's much easier just to, for the for the for the government just to, to tell a lower level government to do this and to do that instead of empowering the people to mm -hmm. have their job opportunities, you know, to uh, create their, their something of their own. And if you look at the situation, I think the the whole society, the whole Chinese society, is kind of, of course, it's still one of the most vibrant compared to, I mean, compared to South Korea, compared to Japan. There's still many many chances, but this 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 uh, kind of society is also. Consolidating, you know, mm -hmm. there are social classes, you know, clear social classes, and if you're if you're a kid born in 2020, born into a family in Beijing with both parents working as middle class, and compared to a kid born in a poor rural village, you know, the the, the chances, mm -hmm. what's the future? Almost the set. The ceiling is lower. Uh, yes. Yeah, and that's. Um, I mean, the inequality issue is something um, obviously that we've reported on extensively. It's not just a Chinese thing, um, and. It, Interestingly, what we've seen creeping into the conversation in China, but also in the West, I mean, at the same time that we've had Donald Trump getting kicked off Twitter, um, we've had the European Union lashing out at the influence of big tech, US government figures also suing, at least threatening to sue, sue social media networks and so on. There's wariness about the power of corporations, even perhaps more so than we have had in, in, in recent years. Um, John and Joe Shin, I'll ask you both about this. How, does, how is that reflected in China? Um, are we seeing scapegoats being made of these big businesses? Are we seeing a government effort maybe this year, next year to rein them in a little bit? You know, this is uh, this is one of the most interesting topics in China right now. You know, it's a government versus a, a big tech, and how uh, similar this is compared to you know the Western governments uh, targeting Google or uh, Facebook, and uh, they are they are kind of rethinking of the role of these uh, big, big technologies in, in in economic growth and in public welfare and in society. I think there are there are several uh, similarities in China. The situation. Uh, is a little bit, how to say, more complicated, because most of the Chinese big technology 
companies, they grow up in this unique Chinese environment. I mean, their overseas um, presence is quite small for most of them, uh, maybe except for, except for uh, TikTok. And they're basically taking advantage of this, uh, whether it's political, uh, legal, regulatory environment. And then now the country is in a new development stage. And they have diff the from the people and from the government, they have different expectations on technology companies. You know, in the last ten years, maybe you're just making life a little bit easier, and you can make a lot of money. That's uh, that's fine. But now it's 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 a little bit different. You know, you you have to be a, a, a force for good instead of the force that is uh, um, manipulating people's weakness and then enrich yourself. For instance, uh, the online uh, microcredit. Of course, it's kind of it's good business. You know, people are denied by by the banks, and some people really need money. Young people they have no credit track record, so they can't get any uh, money from the from the banks. They can't uh, borrow uh, from the traditional uh, finance system. So the credit uh, microcredit platform just to help them. You know, if you want, you just swipe a few swipes on the mobile phone. You get you get the money. You buy a new iPhone, and you know you get more confidence in your work and you improve your performance. Uh, uh, you know, this is a, this is a very kind of positive thing. But on the other hand, we see increasingly like of social problems. Yeah, it's it's like okay, as long as your money, we just give you with, we without asking any questions. And then you you spend the money on games or whatever. You know, it's non productive and causing social problems. And it's always always the government or the public that has stepped out, the taxpayers. You know, to 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 clean the to. To take the take the take the burden. So this is a, this is a, something that the government finally realized that okay we have to do to do something you know to 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 manage it. So mm -hmm. there's a legitimate reasons behind the Beijing's saying we should uh, you, you should enhance anti-monopoly and we should you know uh, avoid the uh, irrational spread of the capital. Otherwise, you know, in any society, if it's winner takes all. Now, you know, the, the, the society will become more and more uh, fr fragile. And, mm -hmm. and and especially for China in the developing stage, you know, this kind of issue is, is real. So, um, as I said in my previous columns, you know, 10 years ago, if you're in Beijing, if you see a protest uh, called mass incidents or a gathering of people, it's usually some farmers who lost the land to their local authorities. You know, it's all, all the, the veterans who didn't get enough compensation after they left the army. But but in the last two or three years, if you if you see anything uh, protest on the Beijing streets, it's usually that it's an online platform, mm -hmm. and the people are coming from everywhere. I mean, if 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 it's a it's a land seizure case, it's usually coming from the same village, right? They 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 belong to the same place. But now it's online business, and for instance, the collapse of online Ponzi scheme, for instance, mm -hmm. and there could be hundreds of thousands of people. And then there, there are like 10,000 people sitting on the streets demanding the, the government to do this. And mm -hmm. the, the, the ringleader maybe already take the money and run away. All the money has already been wasted. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a kind of the balance that yeah. we are talking about. Yeah. So there's two, two, your two social issues there are people needing access to finance, but people getting ripped off as well. So there's a balance to be struck, I suppose. Yes. John, do you want to have comment on the tech issue? Perhaps a short one. Um, yeah. Just to follow up what Joe Shin said, that the, a recent uh, example of, of of the problem that the government is trying to rein in is peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms where 
common people would give money to these platforms, which in turn would lend it out to other people. And you expect to get a return on your investment and very large returns on investment were promised by these platforms. Most of them didn't work out in, in as Joshin said, hundreds of thousands of people lost their life savings. And the government cracked down on this and now there are no more uh, P2P, peer-to-peer lending platforms left in China. But uh, looking at the broader issue of a crackdown on, on tech companies and, and questions about monopolies, on the one hand, monopolies have the ability to mobilize capital quickly and get into new areas and improve uh, services. On the other hand, do they stifle competition and crowd out new ideas and new ways of doing things that they don't yet control? And this is the issue, again, a matter of balance. Um, what, where is the greater good? And obviously, at this point, China is saying, okay, let's row back a little bit on this. And we'll see how far they go and what the longer-term economic impacts will be. Mm-hmm. John, John, well said. I mean, this is, a, this is something, for instance, a new emerging uh, business in China now is called community group buying. It's basically big tech, you know, have their, um, have their supply chain directly reaching into the communities. And this this has huge, I mean, social implications for like for any natural community. I mean, you wake up and you go to your neighbor neighborhood, you know, buy some gross, buy some food from your groceries, having maybe a cup of tea from the local store. But now it's all the all the all the big techs there, so you can order anything you want from your mobile phone. And then what can you know? This is a, this is going to affect like millions of people who are living on the traditional supply chain, you know, the, the mom and pop shops, you know, the, the vegetable vendors. The baker or... Yeah. <laughs> and and, and, and how, how to handle this kind of situation. Maybe one day they, they will be all wiped out and all everyone just living on several apps on their phone to, for supply. How about if there's an emergency? Are there any, any I mean, any, any mechanism to ensure that they will always be providing, uh, you know, affordable or, you know, uh, cheap food? as it has at the beginning when there are plenty of subsidies. Mm. I mean, one day maybe the subsidies will gone and the people will, will start to complain. And then who will you know, have to clean all the, all the, all the trouble? Mm. It's again, it's a, it's, a, it's a local community of the local governments. So you can see that there are clear like, uh, um, concerns or legitimate worries behind these kind of moves. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear some of the parallels. Um, you know, we, we have same complaints in, in parts of the West, the United States, about Amazon's omnipotence and, and presence and owning of Whole Foods and all this here is painted in very dystopian tones in many parts of the media these days and in many parts of society. Uh, anything else, guys? Well, I just wanted to say that it, to re-emphasize what you were just saying is that this is not just in China, but this is a global uh, search for the que- uh, to, to find the answer to the question: What's the proper role, the proper place for big tech, tech companies in the in the economies, in the societies in the future? The U.S. government is is going after Google and Facebook and Amazon with the lawsuits uh, or new regulations, as is the European Union. So this is a global question, not just something in China. Yeah, we will be yeah. following closely and look forward to discussing in the future. But for now, Joe Shin, John Carter, thanks a million for joining us today.
I'm joined on the line by Jacob Fromer. Jake is our Washington correspondent based in the US Capitol. He's been keeping an eye on the Biden inauguration this week, as well as some of the confirmation hearings for key candidates in the new president's cabinet. Jake, thanks for joining us. It's a new day in America. It's about 9am where you are, Thursday morning. You've awoken to, I suppose, a new era. Any initial signs of any differences on the streets that you live? Oh, good morning, Finbar, and it's uh, great to be back on the podcast. Um, yeah, Wednesday was obviously a very big day here in Washington. It, it has been a different atmosphere in the city here. Uh, we, because of the attack on the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, there was basically a giant security perimeter put in place around you know, the federal center of the city um, where the White House and the Capitol um, and a lot of the government buildings are. Um, and then if you just walk around town here um, on many of the, the bus stops, um, you'll see these giant electronic wanted posters with the faces of uh, a lot of the people who were um, seen in the Capitol building two weeks ago, um, you know, posted for anybody who who might happen to spot them to, you know, call in the FBI. Wow. I mean, that's a, I, I didn't realize that was the case. I mean, it must be quite a striking sight. Um, Biden uh, didn't waste any time when he, after he got inaugurated, he signed a bunch of um, executive orders r- rolling back some of the Trump administration's, I guess, what were perceived to be some of the more egregious policies. You were, uh, Johnny on the spot, Jake, following some of the confirmation hearings, uh, Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen. First of all, on, on, on I guess on a general level, did those hearings proceed were they sort of courteous were they did they proceed as expected was there were they confrontational what was the general mood and the vibe from watching these sure Um, these hearings uh they took place actually the day before uh biden was sworn in as president the senate has been trying to for for some of the nominees trying to move quickly enough so that the new president can have his cabinet in place and of course every cabinet nominee has to be confirmed by the Senate before they can start their job, um, you know, working for the president in the White House. And so the tone uh, was was quite cordial. It was very bipartisan. It was, uh, it was really, you know, an atmosphere where there was a lot of respect uh, for the nominees, um, for, for Blinken and Yellen. You could hear, um, you know, signs, very clear signs uh, that these are people who are going to be um, almost certainly confirmed with bipartisan support. You know, the Senate is divided now 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Um, And because the new vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, will serve as the tiebreaker when there are tie votes, um, the Democrats now have control, but it's it's closely divided. But these two nominees in particular, I I would expect just based on what was going on at the hearings, um, it seems like they're going to be confirmed with bipartisan support. Yeah, both have um, had long careers in the government service, um, quite well regarded. Any signs from these hearings, Jake, on on what we might expect vis-a-vis Biden's uh, policy towards China? I mean, everybody's been looking to read the tea leaves in the weeks running up to the inauguration about maybe whether there'll be a major departure, any reconciliation or or anything like that. But what, what's your sense from the statements and the, um, you know, from the cross-examination that the, the nominees underwent? Yeah, I think the message was very clear. Um, these nominees, um, and not only Yellen and Blinken, didn't mince words about China. I think it's clear from what they said. They, they see the country as basically a threat. Um, They see its actions as aggressive and 
I think it's clear, especially for some who also served in the Obama administration, that they don't see it the way that maybe the previous administration saw it uh, back then um, when things were, I guess you could say, a bit friendlier. And so from the remarks, you know, I can give you an example. I mean, Janet Yellen, who's the nominee for the to, to run the Treasury Department, just for example, at her hearing, she referred to China's horrendous human rights abuses. That's her phrasing. And one thing to note about the Treasury Secretary is that, you know, she won't only be thinking about issues that maybe people typically think about with the Treasury Department, like currency manipulation and, you know, economic data transparency. The Treasury Department is also in charge of some of the most powerful sanctions tools that the U.S. government has um, and has already been using against uh, some Chinese officials, including Mm -hmm. Carrie Lam in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a a great point. Um, Some of the statements as well to come out from uh, Anthony Blinken's hearing to be Secretary of State were also pretty striking, Jake. What was his line on China? It was uh, a similar tone and it it was, you know, I'm quoting here. uh, He said at his hearing, uh, this is a quote, I also believe that President Trump was right in taking a tougher approach to China. He said, I'll continue the quote. He said, I disagree very much with the way that he went about it in a number of areas, but the basic principle was the right one. And I think that's actually helpful to our foreign policy. And, you know, I really think that's um, that's a clear message coming from an incoming secretary of state, especially if you think about the fact that this new administration otherwise does not seem eager to keep Trump's policies in place. But as Blinken made it quite clear in his hearing, China is a different story. Yeah, absolutely. There was also a line um, that went uh, around the, the, the press. It was in your story. The Trump administration on the way out, one of its final actions was to declare that the uh, persecution of uh, Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the Xinjiang region of Western China was um, was designated as a genocide. China has repeatedly denied the claims of genocide. And Blinken essentially confirmed that he had the same views, Jake. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, let's not forget that during the campaign, um, when, you know, the two sides, the Biden team and the Trump team basically agreed on essentially nothing. There was one moment when uh, it was reported that the Trump administration was considering making uh, the genocide declaration about Xinjiang. And the Biden team's response was basically, well, we agree. And we even said so first. And so at, at the Secretary of State nominee's hearing, at Blinken's hearing, you know, he was asked about this because it was very fresh um, news at, during the hearing. I'll, I'll read you what he said. He said, quote, forcing men, women and children into concentration camps, trying to, in effect, re-educate them to be adherents to the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. All of that speaks to an effort to commit genocide. So. Again, I think it shows that the Biden administration might not see China so differently from how many people in the Trump administration saw it, at least based on what these nominees are saying, testifying in their hearings to the Senate. You're not really expecting to have a quieter time on the China beat, maybe a less chaotic one, but, you know, uh, covering China and the U.S.-China relationship from from Washington. What is your expectation, um, you know, in terms of how policy will be delivered and how it might change your own job there, Jake, in reporting. You know, this is 
clearly going to be a very different administration. It's going to be a very different president. And I don't think Trump or Biden would disagree with me on that. But when it comes to China, um, I think things are going to be, and this is based on what these nominees and officials and you know the president himself have been saying, um, it's going to be quite uh, similar. And you know, if, if we're paying close attention to what they are saying, and if we're paying close attention to the mood in the U.S. right now, uh, as it's reflected in things like public opinion surveys, as it's reflected in what the Congress is doing and saying, um, I, I think that's clear. And, and that, that also comes from what Biden himself was saying over the last year uh, during the campaign. You know, he called Xi Jinping a thug. You know, he, he, he lumps him together with, um, you know, the world's human rights abusers and, and dictators and, and things like that. And when he speaks about him, you know, he, he does have a previous relationship with him, but I think all signs, and I, I really mean coming from all directions, um, they seem to be pointing to a very similar stance on China, at least in the near future. The tone might be a little bit different. Um, maybe the choice of words will be a little bit different. The Biden administration will call the coronavirus, the coronavirus and not make up other names for it. But I would say, based on what we're seeing and hearing from Biden and his team, they are preparing to take office with the view that China is a threat to U.S. interests around the world. And I think they've been making that point very clear. Well, look, Jake, that's fantastic. And we will look forward to reading your stories and keeping up to date on what happens over in Washington. But for now, take care and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been, I guess, the very first episode of the China Geopolitics podcast from the South China Morning Post. Thanks for listening. You can follow our economic coverage on Twitter at SCMP Economy. SCMP.com is where you find all of our other news related to China, geopolitics and the rest of the world. Until next week, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance and stay safe. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.